Section 2 of Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Ella Quint from Applebacksville, Pennsylvania. Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death by Margaret O. Oliphant. Chapter 2. Domremy and Vougoulaire. 1424 to 1429. In the year 1424, the year in which, after the Battle of Agincourt, France was delivered over to Henry V, an extraordinary event occurred in the life of this little French peasant. We have not the same horror of that treaty, naturally, as have the French. Henry V is a favorite of our history, probably not so much for his own merit as because of that master magician, Shakespeare, who of his supreme good pleasure in the exercise of that voluntary preference, which even God himself seems to show to some men, has made of that monarch one of the best beloved of our hearts. Dear to us as he is, in East Cheap as in Agincourt, and more in the former than the latter, even our sense of the disgraceful character of that bargain, Le Traite Infama of Troy, by which Queen Isabeau betrayed her son and gave her daughter and her country to the invader, is softened a little by our high estimation of the hero. But this is simple national prejudice, regarded from the French side, or even by the impartial judgment of general humanity, it was an infamous treaty, and one which might well make the blood boil in French veins. We look at it at present, however, through the atmosphere of the 19th century, when France is all French, and when the Royal House of England has no longer any French connection. If George III, much more George II, on the basis of his kingdom of Hanover, had attempted to make himself master of a large portion of Germany, the situation would have been more like that of Henry V in France than anything we can think of now. It is true the kings of England were no longer dukes of Normandy, but they had been so within the memory of man, and that noble duchy was a hereditary appanage of the family of the conqueror, while to other portions of France they had the link of temporary possession and inheritance through French wives and mothers, added to which is the fact that Jean Zambeur of Burgundy, thirsting to avenge his father's blood upon the dauphin, would have been probably a more dangerous usurper than Henry, and that the actual sovereign, the unfortunate mad Charles VI, was in no condition to maintain his own rights. There is little evidence, however, that this treaty, or anything so distinct in detail, had made much impression on the outlying borders of France. What was known there was only that the English were victorious, that the rightful king of France was still uncrowned and unacknowledged, and that the country was oppressed and humiliated under the foot of the invader. The fact that the new king was not yet the Lord's anointed, and had never received the seal of God, as it were, to his commission, was a fact which struck the imagination of the village as of much more importance than many greater things, being at once more visible and matter-of-fact, and of more mystical and spiritual efficacy than any other circumstance in the dreadful tale. Jeanne was in the garden as usual, seated, as we should say in Scotland, at her seam, not quite thirteen, a child in all the innocence of infancy, yet full of dreams, confused no doubt and vague, with those impulses and wonderings, impatient of trouble, yearning to give help, which tremble on the chaos of a young soul like the first lightning of dawn upon the earth. It was summer and afternoon, the time of dreams. 
it would be easy in the employment of legitimate fancy to heighten the picturesqueness of that quiet scene, the little girl with her favorite bells, the birds picking up the crumbs of brown bread at her feet. She was thinking of nothing, most likely, in a vague suspense of musing, the wonder of youth, the awakening of thought, as yet come to little definite in her child's heart. Looking up from her work to note some passing change of the sky, a something in the air which was new to her. All at once between her and the church there shone a light on the right hand, unlike anything she had ever seen before, and out of it came a voice equally unknown and wonderful. What did the voice say? Only the simplest words, words fit for a child, no maxim or mandate above her faculties. Jean, sois bon et sage enfant, va souvent à l'église. Jean, be good. What more could an archangel, what less could the peasant mother within doors, say? The little girl was frightened, but soon composed herself. The voice could be nothing but sacred and blessed, which spoke thus. It would not appear that she mentioned it to anyone. It is such a secret as a child, in that wavering between the real and unreal, the world not realized of childhood, would keep, in mingled shyness and awe, uncertain, wrapped in the atmosphere of vision within her own heart. It is curious how often this wonderful scene has been repeated in France, never connected with so high a mission, but yet embracing the same circumstances, the same situation, the same semi-angelic nature of the woman-child. The little Bernadette of Lourdes is almost of our own day. She, too, is one who puts the scorner to silence. What her visions and her voices were, who can say? The last historian of them is not a man credulous of good or moved towards the ideal, yet he is silent, except in a wondering impression of the sacred and the true, before the little Bernays in her sabbats, and, notwithstanding the many sordid results that have followed, and all that sad machinery of expected miracle through which even, repulsive as it must always be, a something breaks forth from time to time, which no man can define and account for, except in ways more incredible than miracle. So is the rest of the world. Why has this logical, skeptical, doubting country, so able to quench with an epigram, or blow away with a breath of ridicule the finest vision, become the special sphere and birthplace of these spotless infant saints? This is one of the wonders which nobody attempts to account for. Yet Bernadette is as Jeanne, though there are more than four hundred years between. After what intervals the vision returned, we are not told, nor in what circumstances. It seems to have come chiefly out of doors, in the silence and freedom of the fields or garden. Presently, the heavenly radiance shaped itself into some semblance of forms and figures, one of which, clearer than the others, was like a man, but with wings, and a crown on his head, and the air d'un vrai poudre a noble apparition before whom at first the little maid trembled, but whose majestic, honest regard soon gave her confidence. He bade her once more to be good, and that God would help her. Then he told her the sad story of her own suffering country. L'habité d'histoire au de France. Was it the pity of heaven that the archangel reported to the little trembling girl, or only that which woke with the word in her own childish soul? He has chosen the small things of this world to confound the great. 
Jean's young heart was full of pity already, and of yearning over the helpless mother country which had no champion to stand for her. She had great doubts at first whether it was St. Michael, but afterwards when he had instructed her and shown her many things, she believed firmly that it was he. It was this warrior angel who opened the matter to her and disclosed her mission. Jean, he said, you must go to the help of the King of France, and it is you who shall give him back his kingdom. Like a still greater maid, trembling, casting in her mind what this might mean, she replied, confused, as if that simple detail were all, Monsieur, I am only a poor girl. I cannot ride or lead armed men. The vision took no notice of this plea. He became minute in his directions, indicating exactly what she was to do. Go to Monsieur de Baudricot, captain of Vucula, and he will take you to the king. St. Catherine and St. Margaret will come and help you. Jean was overwhelmed by this exactness, by the sensation of receiving direct orders. She cried, weeping and helpless, terrified to the bottom of her soul. What was she, that she should do this? A little girl, able to guide nothing but her needle or her distaff, to lend her simple aid in nursing a sick child. But behind all her fright and hesitation, her heart was filled with the emotion thus suggested to her. The immeasurable pite d'histoire au royaume de France. Her heart became heavy with this burden. By degrees it came about that she could think of nothing else, and her little life was confused by expectations and recollections of the celestial visitant, who might arrive upon her at any moment, in the midst, perhaps, of some innocent play, or when she sat sewing in the garden before her father's humble door. After a while, the vrai prudhomme came seldom, other figures more like herself, soft forms of women, white and shining, with golden circlets and ornaments, appeared to her in the great halo of the light. They bowed their heads, naming themselves as to a sister spirit, Catherine, and the other Margaret. Their voices were sweet and soft with a sound that made you weep. They were both martyrs, encouraging and strengthening the little martyr that was to be. A lady is there in the heavens who loves thee. Virgil could not say more to rouse the flagging strength of Dante. When these gentle figures disappeared, the little maid wept in an anguish of tenderness, longing if only they would take her with them. It is curious that though she describes in this vague rapture the appearance of her visitors, it is always as mes voix that she names them. The sight must always have been more imperfect than the message. Their outlines and their lovely faces might shine uncertain in the excess of light, but the words were always plain. The pity for France that was in their hearts spread itself into the silent rural atmosphere, touching every sensitive chord in the nature of little Jeanne. It was as if her mother lay dying there before her eyes. Curious to think how little anyone could have suspected such meetings as these in the cottage hard by, where the weary plowmen from the fields would come clamping in for their meal, and Dame Isabeau would call to the child, even sharply perhaps now and then, to leave that all-absorbing needlework and come in and help, as Martha called Mary fourteen hundred years before, and where the priest, mumbling his mass of a cold morning in the little church, would smile indulgent on the faithful little worshipper when it was done, sure of seeing Jeanne there, whoever might be absent. She was a shy girl, 
blushing and drooping her head when a stranger spoke to her, red and shamefaced when they laughed at her in the village as a devote before her time, but with nothing else to blush about in all her simple record. Neither to her parents nor to the curé when she made her confession does she seem to have communicated these strange experiences, though they had lasted for some time before she felt impelled to act upon them and could keep silence no longer. She was but thirteen when the revelations began, and she was seventeen when at last she set forth to fulfill her mission. She had no guidance from her voices, she herself says. As to whether she should tell or not tell what had been communicated to her, and no doubt was kept back by her shyness and by the dreamy confusion of childhood between the real and unreal. One would have thought that a life in which these visions were of constant recurrence would have been wrapped altogether out of wholesome use and want and all practical service, but this does not seem for a moment to have been the case. Jeanne was no hysterical girl, living with her head in a mist, abstracted from the world. She had all the enthusiasms even of youthful friendship, other girls surrounding her with the intimacy of the village, paying her visits, staying all night, sharing her room and her bed. She was ready to be sent for by any poor woman that needed help or nursing. She was always industrious at her needle. One would love to know if perhaps in the Dresor at Rems there was some stole or maniple with flowers on it wrought by her hands. But the Dresor at Rems is nowadays rather vulgar, if truth must be told, and the bottles and vases for the consecration of Charles X that pouvoir are more thought of than relics of an earlier age. At length, however, one does not know how the secret of her double life came out. No doubt long brooding over these voices, long intercourse with such celestial visitors, and the mission continually pressed upon her. Meaningless to the child at first, a thing only to shed terrified tears over and wonder at, ripened her intelligence so that she came at last to perceive that it was practicable, a thing to be done, a charge to be obeyed. She had this before her, as a girl in ordinary circumstances has the new developments of life to think of, and how to be a wife and mother. And the news brought by every passerby would prove doubly interesting, doubly important to Jeanne, in her daily growing comprehension of what she was called upon to do. As she felt the current more and more catching her feet, sweeping her on, overcoming all resistance in her own mind, she must have been more and more anxious to know what was going on in the distracted world, more and more touched by that great pity which had awakened her soul. And all these reports were of a nature to increase that pity till it became overwhelming. The tales she would hear of the English must have been tales of cruelty and horror, not so many years ago, what tales did not we hear of German ferocity in the French villages? Perhaps not true at all, yet making their impression always. And it was more probable in that age that every such story should be true. Then the compassion which no one can help feeling for a young man, deprived of his rights, his inheritance taken from him, his very life in danger, threatened by the stranger and usurper, was deepened in every particular by the fact that it was the king, the very impersonation of France, appointed by God as the head of the country, who was in danger. Everything that Jean heard would help to swell the stream. Thus she must have come step by step, this extraordinary, impossible suggestion once sown in her dreaming soul, to perceive a kind of miraculous reasonableness in it, to see its necessity, and how everything pointed towards such a deliverance. 
it would have seemed natural to believe that the prophecies of the countryside, which promised a virgin from an oak grove, a maiden from Lorraine, to deliver France, might have affected her mind, did we not have it from her own voice that she had never heard that prophecy. She was, however, acquainted with the simpler byword, that France should be destroyed by a woman and afterwards redeemed by a virgin, which she quoted to several persons on her first setting out. But the word of the blessed Michael, so often repeated, was more than an old wife's tale, and the child's alarm would seem to have died away as she came to her full growth. And Jeanne was no ethereal spirit lost in visions, but a robust and capable peasant girl, fearing little, and full of sense and determination, as well as of an inspiration so far above the level of the crowd. We hear with wonder afterwards that she had the making of a great general in her untutored female soul, which is perhaps the most wonderful thing in her career, and saw with the eye of an experienced and able soldier, as even Dunois did not always see it, the fit order of an attack, the best arrangement of the forces at her command. This I honestly avow is to me the most incredible point in the story. I am not disturbed by the apparition of the saints. There is in them an ineffable appropriateness and fitness against which the imagination, at least, has not a word to say. The wonder is not to the natural mind that such interpositions of heaven come, but that they come so seldom. But that Jacques d'Arc's daughter, the little girl over her sewing, whose only fault was that she went to church too often, should have the genius of a soldier, is too bewildering for words to say. A poet, yes, an inspiring influence leading on to miraculous victory. But a general, skillful with the rude artillery of the time, divining the better way in strategy, this is a wonder beyond the reach of our faculties. Yet according to Alonson, Dunois, and other military authorities, it was true. We have little means of finding out how it was that Jean's long musings came at last to a point at which they could be hidden no longer, nor what it was which induced her at last to select the confidant she did. No doubt she must have been considering and weighing the matter for a long time before she fixed upon the man who was her relation, yet did not belong to Don Marie, and was safer than a townsman for the extraordinary revelations she had to make. One of her neighbors, her gossip, Gerard of Epinal, to whose child she was godmother, had perhaps at one moment seemed to her a likely helper, but he belonged to the opposite party. If you were not a Brujon de Young, she said to him once, there is something I might tell you. The honest fellow took this to mean that she had some thought of marriage, the most likely and natural supposition. It was at this moment when her heart was burning with her great secret, the voices urging her on day by day, and her power of self-constraint almost at an end, that Providence sent the Ron Laxa, her uncle by marriage, to Don Marie on some family visit. She would seem to have taken advantage of the opportunity with eagerness, asking him privately to take her home with him, and to explain to her father and mother that he wanted her to take care of his wife. No doubt the girl, devoured with so many thoughts, would have the air of requiring a change, as we say, and that the mother would be very ready to accept for her an invitation which might bring back the brightness to her child. Laxa was a peasant like the rest, a prudhomme, well thought of among his people. He lived in Bure, La Petite, near to Vougolaire, 
the chief place of the district, and Jeanne already knew that it was to the captain of Vaucouleurs that she was to address herself. Thus she secured her object in the simplest and most natural way. Yet the reader cannot but hold his breath at the thought of what that amazing revelation must have been to the homely, rustic soul, her companion, communicated as they went along the common road in the common daylight. She said to the witness that she must go to France to the Dauphin to make him to be crowned king. It must have been as if a thunderbolt had fallen at his feet when the girl, whom he had known in every development of her little life, thus suddenly disclosed to him her secret purpose and determination. All her simple excellence the good man knew, and that she was no fantastic chatterer, but truly une bonne douce ville, bold in nothing but kindness, with nothing to blush for but the fault of going too often to church. Did you never hear that France should be made desolate by a woman and restored by a maid, she said. And this would seem to have been an unanswerable argument. He had henceforth nothing to do but to promote her purpose as best he could in every way. It would not seem at all unlikely to this good man that the archangel Michael, if Jean's revelation to him went so far, should have named Robert de Baudricot, the chief of the district, captain of the town and its forces, the principal personage in all the neighborhood, as the person to whom Jean's purpose was to be revealed, but rather a guarantee of St. Michael himself, familiar with good society. And the seigneur must have been more or less in good intelligence with his people, not too alarming to be referred to, even on so insignificant a subject as the vagaries of a country girl. Though these by this time must have begun to seem something more than vagaries to the half-convinced peasant, and it was no doubt a great relief to his mind thus to put the decision of the question into the hands of a man better informed than himself. Laxa proceeded to Vaucouleurs upon his mission, shyly, yet with confidence. He would seem to have had a preliminary interview with Baudricot before introducing Jean. The stammering countryman, the bluff, rustic noble and soldier, cheerfully contemptuous, receiving, with a loud laugh into all the echoes, the extraordinary demand that he should send a little girl from Domremy to the king to deliver France, come before us like a picture in the countryman's simple words. Robert de Baudricot would scarcely hear the story out. Box her ears, he said, and send her home to her mother. The little fool, what did she know of the English, those brutal downright fighters against whom no elan was sufficient, who stood their ground and set up vulgar posts around their lines, instead of trusting to the rush of sudden valor and the tactics of the tournament. She deliver France? On a much smaller argument, and to put down a less ambition, the half-serious, half-amused adviser has bidden a young fanatic's ears to be boxed on many an unimportant occasion, and has often been justified in so doing. There would be a half-hour of gaiety after poor Laxa, crestfallen, had got his dismissal. The good man must have turned back to Jeanne, where she waited for him in courtyard or antechamber with a heavy heart. No boxing of ears was possible to him. The mere thought of it was blasphemy. This was on Ascension Day, the 13th of May, 1428. End of Section 2